Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, which is New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fam. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We are still in the baseball mood here. We are coming up right after the 4th of July holiday. We're going to talk about the Mets today. And we joined by Tim Ryder, the creator of the Apple NYM blog and the host of the Simply Amazing podcast. Tim and I are going to talk about the Mets in just a bit. So I want to remind everybody off the top of the show. I talked to Tim before the holiday. So obviously before the Texas series and last night's game against the Reds. So keep that in mind. We have this conversation. So that's coming up in just a bit. Also, stay tuned to the end of the podcast. We're going to wrap up our Stranger Things coverage. Sandra Rosa is going to be back here on the podcast. We're going to recap volume two, the two episodes, supersized ones. Set up the end of season four. What could be coming next on Stranger Things? That's coming up in just a bit as well. If you want more good stuff like the Justin and Suffering podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform, and follow episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. We have with the podcast, Ian Barry, going forward. Let us know how we're doing here. If you like what you hear, leave that five-star review. Leave some feedback. Let us know what you like. If you don't like it, give us some feedback. Let Constructive Chris and let us know what we can do to improve the show here. So check out the YouTube page. Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versions of the chats with Tim and Sam are going to be up on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, we're going to get into our opening tip. We're going to give you some... Thoughts on the Mets overall. That's coming up here right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. <laughs> All right, opening tip time, talking New York Mets baseball. And it's funny here, as you watch the Met fan on Twitter of late, and this team got to the really hot start. They had the 10.5 game lead in the division at the end of May. You had Sal Licata going on SNY saying the division's over. And of course, what happens, the Braves went on a 14 game winning streak. The Mets played about 500 balls to deal with a bunch of injuries. All you hear is, oh, the sky is falling. This is another collapse. This is 2021 all over again. It's not going to happen. This team is too good. They have too much depth overall. And they entering July. I mean, prior to the Rangers series, at least. Still the National League's best record. Still they lead over the Braves in the division. So a lot has gone right for this team. The offense in general has been more productive here. The addition of Starling Marte, Mark Kana, and Eduardo Escobar have given the Mets more professionalism in the lineup, less strikeouts. They put the ball in play more. They generate more runs. They're averaging about five runs a game, which is a big positive because last year this group was very strikeout heavy here. Buck Showalter being here has also helped because this team's had some adversity. It would not be a Mets season if there was not adversity. It's not the Yankees where everything's going perfectly fine. Buck Showalter being here. This team is better fundamentally. This team has, you know, not gotten themselves into stupid controversies. They have not panicked. They're calm. They are doing well. And they have, before the end of June, had not lost three games in a row. That tells you the overall consistency the Buck has brought. And the fact that this team, you know, 
has not had these prolonged losing streaks that usually happen. The June swoon usually includes like a five-game losing streak in there, six or seven-game losing streak, maybe a couple of like lose four, win two, lose another three. They've not really had that, which has been good. The Mets have also done a better job building depth in their rotation because they have not had Jacob DeGrom pitch all season at this point. Hopefully he's back by the end of July. We'll see. Max Scherzer's only made eight starts. He's coming back on Tuesday against the Reds. So he's actually back tonight on the date of the date this, I guess in your feeds. So how uh, they got it done? Chris Bassett has done very well. Taiwan Walker has been excellent. David Peterson has been a solid fill-in in the back of the rotation. Tyler McGill gave you his best DeGrom impression for two months before he got hurt. Trevor Williams has been solid when he's asked to be a step-up guy. They've not had to go really outside of those eight for starts, which is a positive. So that depth has been helpful. They've also played a very hard schedule to this point. People don't appreciate that enough here. Because this team, they've already played four series of the Phillies. They've already played their season series of the Cardinals. They've already gone out west to deal with the Dodgers. They've played the entire road series of the NL West already. The Dodgers, Padres, the Angels. They've had the Astros a couple of times. They have played their season series of the Giants. They have the Brewers in here. Only have the Braves once. That's basically the hardest team they've left for their schedule the rest of the ways. A lot of Atlanta series. One each of the Padres and the Dodgers. There are lots of games against the bad National League teams here. They have a lot of Reds games. They have a lot of games against the Marlins and the Nationals. They have a lot of games against the Cubs and the Pirates. And the A's have not played yet. Those are teams they can really fatten up on. They do, however, need some help in other key areas. The bullpen is an issue outside of Edwin Diaz because the numbers look okay on guys like Drew Smith, Adam Adovino, Seth Lugo, but you watch the games, you can't count on these guys. You need to build a bridge to Edwin Diaz, who has been sensational. Maybe part of it is, you know, when Tyler McGill returns in August, he's a bullpen arm. And so at this point, you have DeGrom and Scherzer in your rotation. That would help, but you still need to get, I think, at least two guys outside of the organization to improve his bullpen. The bottom of the lineup has been an issue. Eduardo Escobar has been extremely streaky. He has not been the kind of guy they thought they were getting. That's an issue, created an issue at third base. The guy really has nothing offensively out of catcher between James McCann and Tomas Nito. And the DH, which for years we were saying, oh, the Mets are going to get a DH. It's going to be amazing because all these guys can hit and can't feel. Don Smith has not been the same guy. J.D. Davis, I do not want to hear about the hard hit rate and how hard he's hitting the ball. You watch the games. He's having 95-mile-hour fastballs blown by him with regularity. That I do not like. And I think they do need to go get a bat here, especially I've been saying for weeks. Put somebody five between Pete Alonzo and whether it's Eduardo Escobar or Jeff McNeil. Give Pete protection. I think you're going to need that. You also need their rotation to get healthy. I mean, getting Scherzer back is going to help. I mean, prior to the Rangers series, Chris Bassett on the COVID IL. He's been pretty healthy other than that. But if they can get to the point where, you know, you have Peterson back in AAA, and after the also you have Jacob DeGrom in the rotation every five days, and you have your planned original five of DeGrom, Scherzer, Bassett, Carrasco, and Walker, that's going to be very, very hard to beat. Right now, though, the important thing for them to keep an eye on over these next few weeks here is they only have one series left in this half against a team with a winning record. That's the three, the big three-game series in Atlanta the next week. Right now, they have this Texas series already done by the time you're listening to this. They have three with the Reds, who stink. They have four with the Marlins, who can pitch but can't hit. They have the Braves series, and they have four with the Cubs, who also stink. Rack up the wins. This team should be getting to the All-Star break about... 56, 57 wins if all goes well. They are right now at 47, entering the Ranger series. 
and they have 13 games. They have 17 games left before the break. I mean, 10 and 7 is a bit underachieving, but again, with all the health issues, you could do far, far, far worse. I think, honestly, you want to really blow a state in here? Finally, go 13 and 4, get the 60 wins on the break. That would be very impressive. And then you have tough stretch out of the break with the Padres and the Yankees, but then set yourself up to make some big moves at the deadline, have a big Atlanta-Philly run in August. So keep that in mind here. The Mets have some work to do. I do think they're in a good position. They need to not fall apart of last year. I think they have time to do that. But we're going to go to more Mets talk. We're going to be joined by Tim Ryder of the Apple NYM and the Simply Amazing podcast right after this. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life, because the Mets are really sucking the ball, knocking those home runs over the wall, east side, west side, everybody's coming down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, talking New York Mets baseball. Joining me today, we talked to him last year about the Mets. He has his own Mets blog, the Apple NYM. He's also the host of the Amazing Pod. Tim Ryder is back. Tim, how are you? Doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem here. And I want to mention before we get started here, we're recording on Friday, July 1st, so we're not going to be able to talk to much about what happened with this Texas series over the weekend here, but... Give me your general take here. That in fact, we enter the third month of the year, and the Mets enter the weekend here, enter July with the National League's best record. I mean, you know, they, they got off to such a hot start that, um, you know, any, I guess, setbacks that they've experienced, um, and, of course, Atlanta getting real hot for a period of time, you know, they, they've been able to withstand that. But um, I think, you know, it took them until the end of June to finally lose three games in a row, which is awesome. Um, but losing three in a row certainly did. Um, it, it, it focused the microscope a little bit more as far as what this team needs to really hang with some of the elite teams in the majors. And um, yeah, I think they have you know, not only the, uh, the the cash and the motivation to go out and, and hit those marks, but um, you know this isn't a flash in the pan type roster or, or you know full roster. It's uh, very very reinforced, and once it gets all healthy, I think it should be a force. Yeah, I mean, we've, I mean, we're recording, obviously, like, after they lose the series, the four to Houston, they lost five of seven here. I feel like there's a lot of panic going on here, especially after happening last year. But, like, the sense I sort of got, I don't know if you agree, is that this is a, a, a different, a much different team than last year's was in terms of where they are health-wise. And, B, they feel like they're going to be more aggressive the trade deadline than they were a year ago. Oh, absolutely. Um, health-wise, and even that, that's still missing, you know, Jacob DeGrom Max Scherzer. They just did such a good job of, of creating depth this offseason um, so that, you know, if they saw something happen like last year where, you know, the bench mob <laughs> takes form and there's so many IL stints, you know, they were prepared for that. And I think still there's, you know, there's holes to be filled and stuff happens over 162 games. And I, I think that, yeah, they're very prepared to um, make all the pushes they need to make at the at the trade deadline. Yeah, absolutely here. I think the the big key for me, I think the biggest difference, aside from the players here, is the fact that Buck Showalter is here and Buck is sort of a calming presence in this dugout and 
has them better prepared fundamentally. They seem to be able to weather adversity better. What do you think about how Buck has uh, impacted this team, what he's brought to the uh, dugout? Just the, the overall calm that we've seen from this team when their backs are against the wall. I mean, you know, even from what, what players were saying, and this is not a knock on Louis Rojas. I think he's going to be a great manager one day in the majors, but, you know, he was thrown into the Mets job. And, and as even keeled, everyone said he was, you know, stuff spiraled. We, we, we saw that firsthand. And um, I think the, the, the almost rock-solid effect that Buck has on the clubhouse you know, there's no wavering. There's no, uh, there's no panic. There's no, at least not that we see. Um, you know, he's he, he's made decisions that have backfired on him, but I think that's part of the game. You know, we've seen bullpen calls that have been either premature or maybe a little too late in some cases. But you know, that's just a, a manager trusting his players. I think everyone knows that every decision Buck makes, there's there's reason and logic behind it. And uh, you know, the ultimate point is, uh, ultimate goal, I should say, is to win the game. And and you know. Bucks, his focus is only on that, and that's really, really reassuring. And that's again not to say that former managers were were being pulled away from that focus, but the overlap between the front office and baseball operations that they're bleeding into the clubhouse and becoming too much at times that really hadn't seemed to happen with Buck. And I think that's probably the biggest step that um, you know that that clubhouse has taken with uh, with Buck at the helm. Yeah, I mean, you also mentioned the clubhouse here. It's definitely been aided by some of these newer rivals here. Max Scherzer, who, as we're recording, has announced he's coming back to the rotation on Tuesday in Cincinnati. That'll be a big help. Starling Marte, Mark Kahn, Eduardo Escobar, name a few here. I feel like just the air of accountability in this clubhouse, I think, is improved significantly. And we don't have any more stuff with, like, the rat raccoon fights. We don't have uh, all of the nonsense last year about how they were tone deaf, what was going on around. And I feel like it sort of has brought this professional. I feel like the, they've also mostly made good impacts on the field as well. Oh, for sure. And the veteran presence can't be understated. And I think the Mets really went out and, and made a point to address that, that, you know, um, not only talent-wise, because there was a lot of talent in the core that was here previously, but, you know, maybe those guys weren't ready to be relied on to be the the, the, the front and center ready for prime time guys. Um, bringing in not just reinforcements, but battle-tested veteran um, consistent reinforcements in the guys like Canna. And I know Escobar's had a really, really inconsistent start so far, but, you know, what he's put together over the last few years has been, um, you know, your 250-ish, 800-ish OPS with a lot of power potential. And, you know, I'm hoping that he comes around, but even the presence that he brings when he's slumping, and you see that, and you see him, you know, first one out top of the steps congratulating the guy, taking a helmet and putting it back in the rack for him, whatever the case is. Um, and that stuff is contagious. That that kind of solidifies that team mentality, and it's just it's been really cool to see. Certainly has, and I think another big key of this team's emergence this year has been the renewed uh, like ap- like uh, excellence from Jeff McNeil, who last year got sort of lost his way. I did feel like after he made the All Star in twenty nineteen, sort of changed the power heavy approach, and I feel like this year he's gone back to the approach. Got had him hitting over three thirty the first half, where he's contact oriented here. And when you've seen the guys in the back of the line, so I feel like Jeff McNeil's become very important to this team. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at a player like Jeff McNeil and, you know, I guess presumably what the last front office had him trying to do, you know, break it down to its simplest form. In what way does Jeff McNeil provide the most value to this team? With his contact profile, it's, it's just putting the ball in play. 
that's just that's what is going to bring the Mets the most value out of Jeff McNeil and how that route got you know went off off path or, or you know off the chart or whatever you want to say I'm not sure of course we weren't in that room but um, whatever he's gotten back to and that's just again putting the bat on the ball uh, it's you know you you see the the dividends it pays and you see I mean. I want to say he's probably still top 20 in the majors in F4. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, yeah, he's back to being Jeff McNeil. And that's just such a, uh, uh, an advantage for, for this Mets lineup, wherever you put him. I, I don't even mind him at the bottom of the lineup because it kind of keeps things, keeps things moving. Yeah. And another guy who's really taking a big step this year is Brandon. No, because obviously when they brought in Starling Martin, they also said, okay, he's going to be the center fielder. And then we'll go out to a corner. Then in spring training, Buck says, we're going to play Nemo in center. And there was a lot of, like, raised eyebrows. We're playing Nemo's ego. But to his credit, I mean, he's improved significantly defensively. He's had a good year at the plate. Like, how important do you think it is for the Mets that Nemo has just shown that he can actually handle center field as opposed to having to be replaced? I mean, he has had one really bad year in center field. I believe 2020 in the shortened season, his um, advanced metrics were, were awful, worse than the league. Um, those were his first, I guess that was his first time putting up negative OAA at any outfield position. And since then, you know, he's put in, again, outside perspective, it looks like he's put in a lot of work to improve out there. Uh, his, his angles to balls are better. I don't, I, I'm not sure if they, they're starting in a little bit more shallow, kind of letting him get to those bloopers and, um, or those short fly balls or shallow fly balls. And it's, uh, it's paid off and he's, he's, his arm is, is accurate. Uh, offensively, I mean, forget about it. He's been, um, he's still that OB, that high OBP guy. He's also sending, you know, frozen ropes into the gaps on a pretty much regular basis. Uh, if I'm the Mets, I'm knocking on his door immediately to see uh, what they can do about it in season extension. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of the extension, that's definitely something that happened in the offseason here. One guy will probably line for an extension in the near future, if not this offseason as well, is Pete Alonzo, who. Right now, he's leading the league with 69 RBIs. The Mets have, as a franchise, never had an MVP. And obviously, you know what Paul Gold was doing in St. Louis. He's been ridiculous here. But, like, how legitimate do you think Alonzo's chances are he'd actually win the MVP? Well, if he goes on the tear that he went on in the second half of 2019 to get up to 53 homers, um, you know, if he breaks 50 again, and Goldschmidt's having a monster, monster season, um, I'm not 100 percent if that's sustainable. Just you know, he he was that hitter at one point. Um, he's getting up there in age, and I, I hope that he can sustain it because I'm a big Paul Goldschmidt fan. But yeah, like you said, the Mets have never had an MVP. Um, Pete certainly, you know, he's upped his game, and not just the power game. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like Jeff McNeil's style rubbed off on him. When he needs to lean on contact, he can. When he needs to go the other way with two strikes or shorten his swing up on. He can, and he does. And, uh, you know, guys are still attacking him with that breaking stuff on the outer half of the plate. Um, going in on his hands, they're starting to learn that that's not always going to work because he does a real, real good job of um, turning him inside out. But, yeah, I, I, the way that Pete's developed as a just an overall hitter, not just a slugger, uh, extremely encouraging. And, yeah, if he can keep that together and, and stick this, you know, keep this slash line in order, and still keep on hitting home runs, breaking 40, even 50 area. Uh, you know, that's a, um, that's a monster season. If, you know, 70 RBIs at the all-star break 
let's say he does break 130. Let's say he even chance breaks 140. It'd be very, very tough. I know, you know, RBIs are a circumstantial stat, but, um, you know, for the voters, for the BBWAA voters, I think it'd be very, very tough to ignore that. Um, even with a, 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 you know, just a magic year that Goldschmidt's having. Yeah, and in terms of also, also having a massive year for the Mets, I mean, like, I don't think the Mets fan confident Edwin Diaz has ever been higher because, I mean, he's been excellent this season. You can see that Buck Schulter being there has gotten more out of him and made him, his usage seem more better here. I think that, obviously, his slider has been ridiculous this year. Like, like, where is your console with Edwin Diaz right now? Oh, through the roof. His stuff is just so nasty. I've talked about it a bunch on um, on my podcast, Simply Amazing. You know, it took him some time to go from being just a thrower to a pitcher. Um, the confidence that he has, not only in his four-seam, which, you know, years ago, you remember when he first got here, you know, his four-seam is a lot of movement. It moves like a sinker almost. It goes side to side just so much. You know, he kind of had to rein, rein that in and harness that, keep it not only on the plate, but off the middle of the plate. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's been able to do that extremely effectively. You look at his slider, which a couple of years ago, you know, if, if he wasn't feeling it, he wouldn't lean on it. It's always been absolutely nasty, but the confidence that he has in his slider now, and he, he I think he said it in a couple of post-game interviews, like, oh, how does the slider feel tonight? Just one word answer, nasty. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's such a weapon that, you know, he can use it against the best hitters in baseball, and these guys are, you know, swinging a toothpick up there. And it's really, really fun, and... uh yeah, I think he's a surefire all and um, easy, big and easy, surefire all star selection uh, going into uh, the middle of July, and uh, yeah, uh, the step forward that he's taken and and what his contract status might be moving forward. Uh, yeah, it's all very intriguing stuff. Yeah, and like you mentioned the all star guys coming up soon here. I think it's actually later than usual. I feel like in towards the second third of July or July nineteenth here, and the Mets have the best record in the NL. They only got, like, two players into the second round of the fan voting, but you feel like they're going to be due for a big contention out in L.A. in a few weeks. So how many also do you think the Mets actually get? Um, I want to say they get four. I, I do think that McNeil gets in as a, as a bench player. I wouldn't, again, in Diaz, that's including Diaz. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Nimmo possibly gets the nod as a bench player, just for the season that he's been putting together. Um, Taiwan Walker, I know, you know, he's probably not going to get that call, but he's certainly put together a first half that deserves another all-star nod. Um, what he's done for this rotation, you know, with just countless injuries to the, to the starting five and, and the numbers he's put up and the consistency that he's shown, you know, he's not going to blow anybody away with, strikeouts he did for a few games there which is really cool but uh just you know absolutely um terrific season yeah i, I think the mets possibly send four out yeah i feel like alonzo and diaz and a lot i think mcneil's probably the best chance to start though especially if uh ozzy alves and jazz chisholm are both hurt by the time the game comes around i can see them like mcneil being the guy who gets picked up to go start that game certainly possible um i'm trying to think of a you know drew smith he probably was, wasn't getting much buzz, but his numbers were terrific. But there's a lot of really, really good relievers in the National League. Um, <laughs> it's certainly possible if Adam Adovino gets a little bit of consideration. I'm not expecting him to get selected. But, uh, 
he's he's had a really really nice first half. You can't complain about what he's done. Um, again, these are all very very long shot selections, but just kind of throwing names out of guys who have been um, really really good. What about Lindor? You think he has a shot? <sighs> I think too many people look at his batting average and say, "Oh, you know, he's just he's wasting." He's taking that contract and not doing anything. Granted, he has slumped at times this season, but he's been able to keep those slumps so short-lived that, that I, you know, and of course the production when he is hot is just through the roof. I mean, he's still, I think, by weighted runs created plus, somewhere around 120, 130, which is uh, 115, 120 possibly. But that's, um, you know, that's that's, pretty good and throw in his leadership throw in his fielding and uh yeah i mean that's a an all-around he's an all-star whether he makes the team or not um i think it might be tough unless there's some injuries and people have to get you know tabbed um i think mcneil probably has a better shot than indoor at this point yeah i would agree and speaking of one of the Met walls on last year we have not seen yet is obviously jacob the grom and as of recording it sounds like he might get a rehab start on sunday but one thing i've noticed here is that the Mets have been very mysterious about like his whole timetable, whereas the Max Scherzer were pretty much open with him. It's like, oh, okay, he's doing this, he's doing this, he's going to rehab here, he's going to rehab again. I feel like we get like next to nothing from them on the Grom. Why do you think the difference is with the, how they're treating him opposed to everybody else? Well, I think getting Max back out there, um, considering the injury itself, and considering how Scherzer knows his body. Uh, and of course, that's the same goes for Degrom. But you know, Max, I think his timetable was six to eight weeks, and everybody knew what was going on there. Jacob Degrom is, um, you know, I think they're they've always been a little more cautious about letting on too much. Um, I think he's the closest thing this organization has had to a Tom Seaver, and, and I think that a certain bit of, of cautious, uh, I guess, caution should come along with that. Um, and plus, you know, adding Jacob, I know we've heard this so many times over the years, and it's always been hot air, but, um, you know, adding Jacob DeGrom at the trade deadline off the IL, I don't care how it sounds. That's a huge, huge plus. And, it, you know, even just letting him get back to normal in August. And, and this is, you know, this could have been the point of view back in March or April or May. You know, let's just let things progress how they're going to progress. And whatever starts you can get Jacob DeGrom out there for, I mean, that's uh, just a, a huge, huge, huge plus for the Mets. And if he is back to being Jacob DeGrom, I mean, forget about it. You go from, you know, a, a patchwork starting rotation to once again having arguably the best starting five that we've seen in, in a decade. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I'm also curious about here is obviously we've noticed the last few weeks, actually, that they have a big issue at DH where they're not getting enough production out of guys like J.D. Davis and Dom Smith here. And the deadline's about a month away here. Do you? They have two intriguing prospects down the farm, either in Mark Vientos, Francisco Alvarez. Obviously, we've heard a lot about them here. Do you think there's going to be a point where the Mets say, okay, let's just bring one of these guys up, see what we have, see if they, A, just catch fire and spark the lineup, and B, sort of give you a sense of, oh, this is what we have, therefore we don't need to go get as much of the deadline? I think I do kind of expect Dom to be traded just because I think everybody, you know, team and player both are kind of ready for that. I think Dom's, you know, and just this is again just going off his quotes. Um, I think he's ready, you know, for to, to, to play every day. And 
you know, let's say he theoretically or hypothetically gets included in a Trey Mancini deal. That's going to be a nice opportunity for Don. He'll play every day. He'll put up decent numbers in Baltimore. Um, he's been in the league for a few years now. He can bring a little veteran leadership to that team. Uh, you know, and in a few years, the Orioles are going to be really good. So if any, if any Mets do end up in Baltimore, I'll certainly be rooting for him. But as far as a guy like Vientos, who has spent a little bit of time at first base too, um, whether it's Dom who gets moved, whether personally, I don't trade JD Davis unless it really makes sense just because, you know, he has gotten pretty hot over the last few weeks is his slash line. Um, I want to say over the last month is, is greatly improved compared to what it was early in the year. And he's just, you know, he hits the cover off the ball. He, he's a, he's a, just a line drive machine. Um, where they, they just need to fall. But, uh, yeah, I, I, if they do move JD, even, you know what, I'll, I'll stick to, if they move JD or Dom, I wouldn't be shocked if the Entos get to call up, you know, if needed, I don't think that they're in, that situation where they need to call up a, a prospect, but he's getting to the point where he can't do too much more in triple a. Um, I'm also very curious to see whether they just include the Entos considering uh, the push that they're going for seems to be more towards a win now roster. And maybe they're not ready to stick a, you know, a rookie at a, uh, at a, a premium position, third base um, as a bench player. though, I'd certainly be on board with it, but, I don't see them bringing them up, bringing them up to uh, anything more than like a a Nick Plummer type situation where you know you need it, you're going to get some at bats. We'll see how you do and take it from there. What about Alvarez specifically, his catcher? Because obviously they've gotten pretty nothing from the position all year. I know James McCann just just got back. He hasn't hit much for the last year and a half. Nito's ready defensively. He's not hit much either. Whereas you could say, okay, Alvarez come up, he'll DH a couple times a week because his bat seems big league ready. He catches once or twice a week. Like, what do you think about that possibility? I think if another catcher gets hurt, I think they do make that call. I think if McCann and Nito can both stay healthy, I, I don't think we'll see Alvarez until 2023. But that being said, it, come spring training next season, he's going to be knocking on that door, um, you know, rapping on that door. And, 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 you know, by all accounts, he deserves it. He's absolutely, you know, hitting just rockets in double A. Uh, Matt Scherzer, who I guess he's pitched to him twice in the last uh, during his rehab stint, had glowing, glowing reviews. Um, you know, he said his bat's ready to play in the majors now. I, I don't have the the quote here, but I believe he was very happy with how he caught and called the game. You know, you have to um, you have to take all this into account that maybe you know you catch lightning in a bottle with this guy, and we've seen players go from Double A straight to the majors and succeed. It's not uncalled for. I mean, it's not unheard of. Uh, the catching position is a really tough one to do it from. We've seen guys come up, uh, you know, highly touted backstops come up in recent years. And, you know, Peter out. I, I, I look at Joey Bart. Joey Bart is a terrific hitter. Uh, monster, monster uh, for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, heir apparent to Buster Posey. Of course, Buster Posey somewhat um, unexpectedly retired and between the injury the year before and then Buster calling it quits, Joey Bart's had a really, really tough time adjusting to major league pitching. And he didn't spend a lot of time in the minors. Um, and this can go for anybody. Look at Jared Kalanick, who played like 19 games at AAA before making his debut. Got absolutely cooked at the major league level. 
back in triple a now and he's getting his confidence back he's hitting well but there's a lot to kind of weigh in these decisions like do you want to like i was saying you might catch lightning in a bottle and he might hit the ground running at this level but you also take the chance of stunting his development and with a talent like this it's not a chance i'm willing to take but again come spring training next season uh if he's still on this trajectory it's kind of hard to deny <laughs> Absolutely. My last question here is obviously we only have the deadline coming up here in about a month here. They have some clear needs and he help in the bullpen. They need to get probably another bat or two for the bottom of the lineup here to get, get themselves a little more pop beyond their top five here. Like what do you realistically see them doing? You see them like using prospects trying to get big names here. You see them trying to take on money to try and get maybe a guy in a bad contract and be useful here. What do you think they end up doing? Well, I do think they hold on to most of their big name prospects. Um, and that being, you know, your, uh, your Alvarez, your Beatty's. Um, I, I still think Ronnie Mauricio stays in the organization. I think that they, I think that his ceiling is just, you know, ridiculously high. I, I, I can't, unless the, the deal is really, really, you know, worth it. I have a feeling that he sticks around um, just because his, oh man, I think he's a player. Anyway, uh, I do think that the Baltimore, the Trey Mancini deal, I think it was Hayman from, uh, I guess he's with the post now. I believe he brought it up that the Mets had interest in Baltimore's Trey Mancini. We talked about it a little, little bit before. I think that's a realistic move. I think he adds uh, DH type depth. He can take over at first if Dom is included in the deal, um, at least when Pete gets a DH day or, or what have you. And I said it on Twitter on Friday. Um, Jorge Lopez, who's a stud reliever for the Orioles. 29 years old, so he's not under contract much longer. Incredible stuff. Um, I see what it takes to to kind of get those those two in a deal and 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 see kind of where it goes because uh, yeah, that's those are the type of solidifying moves that kind of check all the boxes they need. I wouldn't be surprised to see if they keep on looking whether it's another impact bat. I know someone. I don't know if it was just fans tossing around ideas or if it was a report, but. Um, oh, Chris Soto. Chris Soto, my buddy from Mesmerized. He brought up the idea of going hard after Luis Castillo, the pitcher from Cincinnati, and also maybe trying to limit cost and taking on a Joey Votto in a, as a DH type deal. That would be fun. I mean, Votto's really struggling this year. Last year, he had a monster year. He said he was focusing on more power. Um, I think there's a happy medium there between him trying to hit home runs and him just being the on-base guy that he's always been. And that could play, especially in the postseason where he's been waiting to, you know, he's been waiting for a real shot his whole career. Uh, I wouldn't be totally against that type of player as a DH. Just, you know, depth and quality depth at that. And, uh, yeah, I think that could be a, a very intriguing move. Absolutely, Tim. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I hope you follow social media. Keep up with some of, some of your Mets coverage. Sure. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Timothy R. Ryder. That's R-Y-D-E-R, like the uh, moving truck company. Uh, the Apple, that's The Apple NYM on Twitter. Um, if you search for The Apple or Tim Ryder Mets on Google, you'll go right to our, uh, our Substack newsletter. And the podcast is simply amazing. We usually, we definitely come out on Mondays. Sometimes we also come out on Fridays, but uh, yeah, that, that all depends. It's definitely a weekly show, sometimes a semi weekly show absolutely uh tim thanks for all the time really appreciate it oh thank you mike and uh let's go mets though
All right, we are back here. Stranger Things Volume 2 coverage recording on 4th of July here as the fireworks are going off in the background here. I'm one, Welcome back to the Justin and Suffering Podcast. Mike Phillips here with our pop culture correspondent. Sandra Rose is here. Sam, how are you? I am doing great. That was like the world's best timing yeah. for those fireworks. It was incredible timing. Can you hear mine? I can hear yours, too. That's so crazy. Yeah. What a good 4th of July, especially because I associate Stranger Things a little bit with the 4th of July. I mean, season three basically was 4th of July. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're here again. We I have the Christmas lights going, got the fireworks going. I got two of the four seasons covered, basically, in terms of uh, content here. <laughs> well, you have more seasons than I do. Yeah. So I planned ahead on the on the, on the lights. I cannot have called the fireworks, but that happened to work out very well. A happy mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dive into the general stuff on volume two, the most let's answer one important question here. The question obviously is, are you with Argyle that pineapple on pizza is incredible? See, this is where everyone's going to hate me as a true Italian. Um, I actually like pineapple on pizza because I like the salty sweet combination together. And I really could care less if people hate it because it's good. And also a lot of um, like Latin people like pineapple on their pizza, according to all of my knowledge, transcribing the Yankees spring training footage. So a lot of Yankees like pineapple on their pizza. Yeah, well, I feel like for me, it depends on like if the pineapple is good, I'm okay because like I've, I've experienced with bad pineapple on pizza. Well, and it has to be the appropriate size. It can't yeah. be like those like really thick chunks. And yeah. it's just like, you're just eating like really thick pieces of pineapple. Yeah. They have to be like a good, a good size pineapple. So like it needs to be like more like diced. Yes. I totally agree with that one. Yeah. Totally fine with that. And obviously we are recording right now. We're going to give us a little bit of spoiler free talk. We're getting to the actual spoilers of the last two episodes here. So give me your general thoughts on these last two episodes, about four hours of the stranger things we got on Friday. <sighs> it was a lot. And I know that's what I told you when you were watching it. Yep. It was, um, a lot. it was a lot. It was a lot of like information, action, knowledge, just everything at you all at once. Um, so a lot is what I would sum up as volume two. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm not necessarily saying it was an amazing thing, but it was just an information overload. Yeah, I feel like episode eight really was like the setup and like episode nine, I feel like was just like, there was a lot there. There was some stuff I feel like you could trim down a bit. And then like, I feel like there were things you didn't necessarily, I was kind of like, okay, this is maybe where, you know, like I stop and like go get a drink or something like that and pause it. But like, I feel like with this, with this one, especially part nine, talk about the length of this one it was two hours, 22 minutes on Netflix. I feel like I, what I did is I basically ended up watching like an hour 15. It took 20 minutes to go like take a break then came back and watched the last hour of change. Yeah, especially because I'm like, okay, like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then you got, like, all this action happening. And I literally had paused to see how much time I had left. And there was another 40 minutes left. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell are they doing now? Like, what else is there? Yeah. So I was, uh, it was an interesting pacing. Um, there has to be a reason why they did that. Um, but um, the jump ahead for two days felt like very lazy writing unless yeah. it's there to serve a purpose for season five. Yeah, it basically serves the epilogue. That's the way I basically looked at it is a calm down from the intense action we had. Yeah, I, I would like to think um, for the spoilers out there, the um, not spoilers, but like the like, you know, guesses what's going to happen in season five that I feel like 
that's going to play like the in between two days might play like a big thing in the first couple episodes of season five. But then again, what do I know? Everything's speculation. Yeah. In terms of the actual length list, though, do you feel like it needed the two hours and 22 minutes? Um, I feel like there was definitely some things that could have been um, shortened. I'm, I'm saying like two hours probably would have been fine. Yeah. But I feel like it had to be lengthy. Yeah. But I didn't think it had to be that lengthy. I wonder if there's a way you can like sort of like split it and do it into two two episodes and have it be ten parts at nine. No, that's also nice. I like even numbers anyway. Yeah, because yeah, for me it was like okay, like I there's some stuff I like. I did think it was weird to be watching an episode of television that's longer than several blockbuster movies from the summer. So yeah, like I said, I feel like that's a whole Duffer Brothers specific thing, you know. Yeah, I'm sure Netflix basically told them and said, hey, like, you do you. Like, we're good with whatever you want to do. Yeah, especially because they're paying all that money. Yep, absolutely. Let's now get into some of the spoilers here because I don't want to wait any longer on the big plot points here, so. All right, you've been warned. If you did not finish volume two of Stranger Things, and by, I'm assuming you, if you didn't, finish volume one and then start watching A, what the hell is wrong with you? And B, go stop and come back about five hours at the, at about 13 hours. And if you watch the whole season, come back and you don't want to be spoiled, but <laughs> they jammed a lot in here. Yes, they did. Yeah. It was a lot of like, it's so much so where I went back and I had to like go, like I scrubbed through just to make sure I like saw everything and my brain were like, you know, retained it all. Yeah, absolutely. And let's start out here with, the Dustin plan where we basically see the group come together and they sort of figure out that, Oh, like they need to get like, they figure out the Vecna needs to kill a fourth person to basically unlock the gap between the, the upside down and Hawkins. Mm-hmm. Max says, you know what? Like I'll let him try and come for me. I'll stop playing the music. And Dustin comes this whole three scheme plan where basically Eric is the lookout. Lucas keeping an eye on Max. The rest of them go into the upside down where Dustin and Eddie distract the demo bats. And then, they go, the Steve, Robin, Nancy trio goes to kill Vecna while he's basically at his mind palace. He's trying to kill Max. So in terms of the overall plan, what do you think of how this went? For uh, a plan, I truly think it was a really well thought out plan. Um, you know, like, and for the plot wise, I feel like it worked very well. Um, and it gave like certain relationships that needed attention, attention. Um, so I liked how it was laid out, um, from like more of like a storytelling perspective. Yeah. I mean, considering they don't have 11 in like with them at that point, I feel like it's probably the best they could come up with on short notice. Yeah. I mean like, and then you have to remember that they don't even know where they are because they just keep calling and calling. The only reason we have like that connection is through 11 slash being a viewer, but it's just like, it's crazy. Like they're like, they're like, they're just like surviving as their own group. It feels like they're they're completely separated at this point yeah i mean that's one of the big things from episode eight the other one i think i was like is the big will reveal the painting where we basically again they don't outright confirm it because i don't think they seem to ever want to fully admit that will is gay but he basically like has this whole like incredible speech where like he's confessing his feelings to mike without actually confessing his feelings directly and he's basically using 11 as cover and a, I, f- I f- it was a great acting by Noah Schnapp, and I felt bad for him because <laughs> Mike is just in his own little world. Where he's not even reacting to the fact that like Will's like having this big emotional moment in front of him. 
freaking mic man but literally that was such a great scene and that like painting was like it was just so adorable like he's giving his heart and like you know bearing like his feelings you know he's disguising it but somebody online was saying that like this is the height of like the aids epidemic yeah so it's just like that we might not ever get him to like come out just because it's kind of like you know a bad thing at this like time period and it's like the midwest um but like again another thing like another annoying character with that in that scene was jonathan i feel like jonathan at least was like aware of what was going on he does try to make up make up to him a bit later when he's like tells him when they're in the when the pizza shop saying hey you know like i'm here for you if you need if you need I anything yes i just feel like he's just like that character has for me has just like taken a slope downhill yeah i also did think the fun part of that storyline from the episode is like is like I guess this is a little bit of episode nine as well. Is like when they Argos the brilliant idea to go to the franchise uh, surfer dude pizza shop, and then like he's basically bargaining with the other like Argyle dude from that store. This is saying, like, hey man, like if we use your your freezer and your salt to send her like on this on this mission to kill the friend other psychic dude from starting a war. And I love that the cashier there basically bought all that. Said I can't help you. I have to go meet my buddy at Taco Bell. Yeah. That was uh that was very that was very funny like it was just so like out of sorts and like that's the thing what i like about argyle is like you're in this like very specific like feeling and then he's just like haha i mean i know he's there for like a comedic relief but it's just really funny i think it does i think it worked out very well here and i do think that was one of the big things in these episode eight also the it was a lot of time in the nina bunker with brenner and owens and 11 and we do finally get this big confrontation between Brenner and Eleven, and Eleven basically calls him out. They say like, "You're a te- you were a terrible father. You did all these horrible things to us." Brenner does actually die finally. He gets shot when the army comes in. The sniper takes him out, and I did think it was great that like when he goes, he basically tries to like get like some sort of like acknowledgement. Eleven, Eleven doesn't give it to him because like the character did not earn that in terms of his actions. No, that was a very like that whole thing that whole you know uh, i want to go you can't go you know like locks her and says like you know whatever but like and then he hits her with the syringe to like knock her out it's just like you know it's just so frustrating that he's such a like you think he's like making some strides and then you just realize that it's just power move he's just like a very like selfish man and then when I mean his last his like last ask, act basically was you know releasing her from that collar, yeah. But like and then he's just like oh stay with me. But like the fact that she you know picked up and left was like so it was such like a big learning and like you know breakout thing for Eleven. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean we see at the end of the episode we see like sort of her going through her powers here. I do want to sort of loop the Russia storyline in here because I'm not talk about it all in one shot because this by far the weakest part of this finale. Hundred percent like felt like this could have, you could have lopped like at least like ten minutes off of this and we would have been like a much like leaner, cleaner finale. Yeah, and it wasn't even like there was an insane amount of like Joyce and Hopper. It was just like I know that there's other characters involved, but it just seemed like so long. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it right now in terms of what's going on here with the uh, plot here. I mean, we basically have, like, first of all, before I get into this reference, like, 
how far into Obi-Wan Kenobi did you get? Did you finish the show? Did you... Yeah, I finished the whole thing. Like, when we see Hopper in the prison and we see him go through the vault with all the Demogorgons and Stacey, like, this is basically the exact same scene as Obi-Wan Kenobi episode four when they had the, he finds the Jedi in the tomb. Like, they're all in the same, like, maroon liquid, except, mm-hmm. except they get out. I mean... We do get one fun payoff where we see Murray using the flamethrower and we see uh, Dem- like Hopper beheaded Demogorgon with a sword, which is falling yeah. out. But like, and the it was just made no sense that we spent, we basically just took the adults off the board for the entire season. And then the justification was like, oh, we can, you know, kill these Demogorgons. It'll distract whatever they're dealing with in the main storyline. And like, okay, this, this is a little, like a little tangential. I felt like. We could have done better with Hopper and Joyce and Murray in the season. I understand. I ugh, I don't know. I don't like to nitpick because, like, I could never create something this awesome. But, uh, like, the fact that they escape prison and then they go back into the prison, I'm just like, wh- like, what purpose did that truly serve besides getting the helicopter? You know what I mean? From, like, Yuri. But, like, you know what I mean? It's just, like, very frustrating the way it was handled. It was really, like, odd the way they did the storyline. I mean, if you think about it, like, we do get the epilogue at the end where Hopper shows up and he's basically reunited with Eleven. Like, Joyce has not seen her kids in six episodes. It's just, like, I don't know. And then Joyce seemed a little more goofy this season than, like, in previous seasons. Like more, I don't know. It's just like there, there's so much more severity for this season, and it felt like they let her, you know, let the character become a little more lighthearted. And I'm just like, what? Are you just like immune to all this now that you're in Soviet Russia? Like, I guess. Crazy. It is pretty crazy. I mean, I, I did have fun with again Murray. Like, I, I was not standing trying to get Yuri like, involved in this thing. I didn't like his character as a whole. I feel like he's one of the worst characters of the season here. But like, yeah. I did think, like, we spent too much time on this storyline. I feel like you said, we talked about it getting like, several points in our, in our uh, volume one cover. Like, oh, Hopper's going to be out of Russia in four episodes. Oh, Hopper's going to be out of Russia at the end of volume one. He's still, like, about 20 minutes left in volume two for Hopper to leave Russia. He's still in freaking Russia. Yeah. <laughs> and Stanley, and I feel like there's a chance we go back to Russia next season. Oh, my God. If they're in Russia again, I'm going to be so annoyed. It has to It has to be all in freaking Hawkins. It has to be. If they're not all together this entire season, I'm going to be so mad. Yeah, that was one thing I felt like the whole season. I think that's like, it does hurt to see the bits that way. Yes, we have a big cast, but like, we said Mike and Will, like, away from the rest of the friend group the entire season. Yes. Eleven, like, Eleven was, like, basically in a bunker with Brenner and Owens for, like, a thir- two-thirds of the season. Ugh, yeah. I mean, like, hers at least made a little more sense. Yeah. And the fact that they couldn't, like, okay, I get it. Like, they, she needed to use her, like, you know, powers. Yeah. But, like, the fact that they couldn't get to freaking Hawkins, I was like, this is the 80s. There has to be, like, more flights and stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. You think back to, like, especially with Dustin, how, like, last season he was sort of off in the uh, Steve, Robin, Erica quartet for, like, the whole season. Yeah. Like, it's been basically two seasons since he and Mike have really shared a ton of scenes together. Yeah, now that you put it like that, like, Dustin and Mike, I feel like, haven't even really shared any kind of scene together, except for, like, what, the first episode? Yeah, I mean, when they, they did the, the, the D&D Hellfire campaign. Club. Yeah, they did the D&D campaign. That was the only real time we see them in the uh, first episode. Yeah, it seems, it's like, seal feels like they're, like, pushing that friendship aside completely. It absolutely does here. And we also get, I think, a lot of good Vecna info here. And were you ready for the reveal that, basically, Vecna created what the Mind Flayer is now? I wasn't surprised because, like, 
like it kind of felt like it's a very natural flowing act you know what I mean so I was like I was just like okay I wasn't very like wow you know it was kind of like all right that makes sense yeah, I, I did like it, though, where it does sort of flip the assertion that Dustin has all season. Oh, like, the Mind Flayer is in charge, and Vecna's his top general, whereas he found out, oh, no, Vecna is in here, and he created the Mind, like, he basically organized the Mind Flayer to do what he does, and he's letting that perception sort of, like, crowd the kids judge. I think it's fun. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that was definitely a fun reveal, and we did have a lot of fun interactions between Vecna and Eleven when she basically has the idea, like, oh, I'm gonna piggyback on Max's plan, or I'm gonna... Is basically like hop into whatever mind power she's doing and ambush Vecna there. I thought that was great strategy on her part. And yeah. I like that. I did. I don't know if you felt this. I think I texted you this. I don't know if you felt this also. I felt like this whole back half gave you like major, major, major Empire Strikes Back vibes. Yes. I re- you've mentioned that too. And I'm like sitting there because I watched it before you finished. And I was like, he's very... That's like right on the head, like right on the nose. Yeah. Like I was just very, I was like, oh, yeah, it really is. Like, yeah. The thing that made really stick out to me, especially is like, especially Eleven's story arc in this, these two episodes, is like where she decides she wants to go back and Brandon basically being like the dark version of you. Like, you're not ready. You have to like continue your training in order to master your skills to go back and fight them. And then like we see like she like wins, but at a cost where like, mm-hmm. At the end of the episode, I mean, like the like her like she's not able to prevent Max from like dying for a little bit, and then opens up the floodgates for all the chaos that's gonna come. Oh my god! No, that's that's very that's a very good comparison, and I haven't even heard any of those comparisons online either. Yeah, I stole from a podcast I was listening to about episode part eight. They were talking a lot about the Empire Strikes Back. I was like, oh, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, and we do also get here. Something I think that a lot of people saw coming that I was not a big fan. I mean, this is something a move that Stranger Things loves to do is that they give you a side character, make you love them, and they kill them. And we did that with Eddie here. And Eddie did the good build on the character moment here where he's basically, you know, talking about how he's not going to run away anymore. He is sends du- like Dustin back through the upside-down portal to protect him, leaves the demo bats out to buy more time, gets killed by the demo bats here. I do think, like, great death for him. We love the character, but, like, I do feel, like, a little bit misled by them where they said, oh, you have so many deaths in this volume, too, and we lose. There's technically five, like they said, though. The four kids. Yeah. And Eddie. Yeah, I mean, they said solidly specifically. I mean, we got him. We got Brenner. We got the uh, Jason ripped in half by the fault line of the uh, monster. It's really it. Oh, yeah, I forgot about freaking that guy. I hate him. And and Max dies for about 10 seconds where Eleven, like, revives her. Yeah. um, But interesting enough, the Duffer brothers said that demo bats can't kill. So, like, I don't know if you've been on any theories or anything, but, like, there's a theory that Eddie's not dead and, like, that two-day, like, thing, like, you know, is, like, you know, they hide him because he's still wanted for murder and... There's just so many things out there that's like all speculation, but like the Duffer brothers said, like, and then he's and then Joe Quinn is still confirmed for season five. I mean, that's always like a thing that people do for production, but very interesting. Hmm? I did read an interview with the actor. Basically, he said he's dead. The the Duffer said he's dead also. So I'm going to take their word for it. I don't think they're going to lie to us. I know. But then why did they say like the demo bats can't kill anybody? 
Well, I, I think they just said that because they explained why Steve didn't die. I assume he just died of blood loss. Oh, God. Did, how much did you love his scene, though? It was great. I mean, I loved when he was on top of the roof and the upside, on the trail and the upside down playing Master of Puppets. That was great. Yeah. Did you know that he played that live? I did not know he played that live. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, like, I, I can't, I don't know the whole story, but he played it live. And I know the actor was saying that this was, like, the first, like, live music event like since yeah. the pandemic. So everybody was like jamming out yeah. and stuff. And I was like, that's so cool. Like, Yeah. It was a great choice of song too. The lyrics work perfectly for what we were doing. Yeah. And it's so funny. There's so much speculation on what the song was going to be. And yeah. I don't think anybody really got it or I haven't seen anybody get master puppets. Yeah. No, way would have gotten that here. And then we also get here that we see that 11's losing one point. We see Max as he floor. We start seeing her limbs snap on the screen. And then 11 saves her temporarily. And then like, she dies for 10 seconds. That's when the fault line opens up here. Eleven does resurrect her, basically, but she, we end the season with her in a coma, and we don't know when she's going to wake up from it. This is, again, sort of like the... She, you can sort of view her as our Han Solo of the dark, the Empire Strikes Back comparison, where like she's basically frozen in carbonite in her mind, and Eleven can't find her. Like, yeah. What did you think about that choice to, to not go through with actually killing her? Well, I'm happy because I really like Max as a character. She's been one of like my top uh, characters from the season and the series. Um, that scene with Lucas like holding her, when he improvised a few lines, like I don't know if you've gotten into that part of like looking up whatever, but um, that was like so rough to watch. Um, and I was like, no, they're losing. Like I was so mad. I mean, like, because they did say there was going to be a bunch of deaths, like, whatever. So I was, like, kind of, like, making my peace with Max dying, like, in the moment with her arms breaking. Um, but I thought it was, like, it was insane. Like, that those last couple scenes with Max in there saying, like, you know, like, come find me. You know, like, everything with, like, you know, with, I keep calling him Pennywise because I feel like there's a lot of, um, like, similarities between this, like, last couple episodes of Stranger Things and it. I don't know if you get that vibe as well. A little bit. But um, I'm also, uh, sorry to digress. I feel like, you know, the Breakfast Club, are you a big Breakfast Club fan? Yeah. Do you feel like there are like those actors like spread out in between, like in this season? Because we had like the Ali Sheedy character and what's her, and Susie's sister. Yeah. And um, Robin's love interest looks just like Molly Ringwald. Yeah. That's, so I have to go back and watch to find the everybody else. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. You think about that. Yeah, that's like what popped in my head. Um, I almost forgot to bring that up with you, but um, I really hope that she's not brain dead. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she's brain dead. I feel like she's going to wake up at some point in season five. And so the thing I'm thinking about with this situation here, I think with the Max thing, is like, again, sort of goes back to like, how they tease with Steve, they tease with Max. And Grant, you, I agree with you that Max is probably the best, one of the best characters of the season. Incredible acting out of Sadie Sink in this show. The thing I'm frustrated with here is that, like, we basically tease it out twice now. And I get that they love their main cast and they don't want to really move off from any of them. But I think in terms of story impact, if we did lose her here, it would have really, really upped the stakes for that final season. But I think I get why they don't want to, like, part with her. That's true, unless they're going to part with her in season five. Yeah, you know, there's no future stuff after season five, I think. So I would yeah. assume that, like, all everybody's going to be, like, on the table. Yeah, and my thing is, like, you said there's going to be a time jump. Yeah. That's so the, I'm really interesting of, like, what's going to be going on from that. 
My guess would be they're going to end up being like seniors in high school when we see them again. That's my guess on the time jump. Yeah, but do you think it's going to be everything? Everything's going to be almost in like golfed into the uh, upside down? I have no idea because that's that leaves it so wide open what they could do here. I know. I'm sorry. I'm asking questions. I know you don't have the answer to. I don't yeah. have the answer to, but I have so many questions. It's definitely worth speculation here because I do think in terms of this, I mean, we do get all this stuff kind of coalescing here. We do see that Eleven brings her back to life, but the damage is basically done. We have a big, like, catastrophic earthquake with the ups- there's a gate upside down or basically opening all over the place, and they have this big fault line. A lot of people are dying, and, and we see that we get the epilogue of two days later, and everybody's sort of leaving Hawkins when Argyle and the Surfer Pizza Van show up, and I did think it was nice to sort of see a bunch of these like ran through line so I get like touched on here. I thought my mm-hmm. favorite thing here was obviously I think Robin like finally getting to talk to Vicky was great. Yeah, that yeah. was so cute. And how cute was Steve? Like yeah. so happy for yeah. her. Like he's like there like folding yeah. clothes and yeah. he's like <laughs> Yeah. And we finally get our first interaction of the season between Jonathan and Nancy because they finally meet up again and like I did the whole season setting up like Steve. I do think that was another reason they didn't kill Steve boss. They wanted to leave that tension of the final season. Like, oh who is Nancy gonna pick? Yeah, I feel like they'll probably have, like, a love triangle thing again. I think they set that up very well. So I see what Steve is basically opening his, like, his heart to Nancy, saying, like, oh, you know, like, I always had this dream about, like, taking the RV trip with six kids and, like. Oh, so cute. Yeah, yeah. It was so awesome. I, like, the fact that Steve has just come so far just makes me so happy. Yeah, and, like, you could tell, like, it was weighing on, like, Nancy. And he basically says, like, you know, like, you were always in the picture for this. And, like, I, like was not ready for you like at the time and sort of like evolve like, like making the mistake sort of maybe realize like I, I met you now I thought we'd be better off like they, that was all weighing very heavily on her yeah and then also how sick was Nancy with her sawed off shotgun that was that was great I love she's that she's just like coming in like like yeah. blowing like bullets everywhere I was like Jesus Christ like she was like take no prisoners she looks so angry. Yeah, I the lo- actress did an amazing job. Yeah, I love when she was sawing it off in the previous episode. I, I, I forget if she was with Erica or Robin, and then she was somebody. Whoever was asking her is like, like, "Isn't this illegal?" It's like, "Yeah, it's probably a felony." And she just finishes sawing the gun off. Yeah, but think about why she was sawing off the shotgun yeah. because what's his stupid face Jace, grabbed Jason. it. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, so when you know she was, I think she was sitting with Max, yeah. and when she did that, but like she was like. You know, she learned a lesson. Like, she's Nancy. What I love about Nancy is she's like the smartest. I think she's the smartest character, like, on this show. Yeah. Um, like, she's just like, you know, she just handles everything herself. Like, she's just awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I do think the other stuff here is that, as you mentioned, we got the reunions with the characters who were in Russia and California meeting up with the Hawkins crew. That was great. We see Lucas waiting at Max's bed at the hospital, reading to her. Like, that Ugh. one hit me in the feels, too. That broke my heart. The, part that really broke my heart was when like she was like on there and he's like erica go get help like yeah. help like yeah. all that stuff i was like what the hell this is <laughs> this is so depressing yeah it was very depressing and i do i do think that we left a lot of these characters in interesting places here especially mm-hmm. like at the end where we get that tremendous shot of just like i think i forget it's hopper and joys i think jonathan and will, will and mike and mike and Jonathan, Nancy, Will, and Mike, and Eleven are all looking at the like the chasms in the earth with the with the particles from the upside down, basically snowing on the on the uh, scene there, and it ends mm-hmm. there. I'm like, that's a great tease. I, I was happy. It with- is. And did you did you catch the small detail? Uh, which small detail? 
So 11, you see 11 stand up. Her nose is bleeding. Yep. Did you see Will's nose was bleeding? I did not catch that. Yeah. I wonder. So what does that mean? Again, I know you don't have the answers, but what does it mean? <laughs> they definitely hinting at him having a big role. When he's the one who basically tells Mike, like, oh, Vecna's not dead. Like, we didn't kill him. Like, I can sense he's still alive. And I thought that was another good choice they made not to kill Vecna because, like, Jamie Campbell Bauer is probably the most intriguing villain the show has had. So it's, yeah. and it's nice to know that they're going to have one more round with him in the next season. Because he's like, you know, your classic, like, villain. Yeah. Like, everything else they faced in the past couple episodes, it was just monsters. And yeah. now they're facing, like, you know, the villain of the Upside Down. Yeah. And, like, he is menacing when he's really, like, in his, in his, in his, in his, uh, uh, what do you call there? When he's, like, really getting down. So he's, like, toying with his food. It's, like, really terrifying. Yeah. Which is another fun, weird thing, too. Again, I'm sorry I'm coming at you with all these, like, what if? Because people are saying, what if he never let Nancy go? And that was just him showing everything. Like, it's just so, there's just, people are so creative with their thoughts on what's going to happen, what happened in it too. It's like, ah, so crazy. Yeah, I'm overwhelmed, Mike. I'm overwhelmed with information of what ifs. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of what we could be looking at for season five here, I mean, we're probably going to wait at least two years before we get the final season of this show. I wouldn't be surprised if you get volumes again so they can sort of get some out to people before then. So like, Mm-hmm. We know there's a time jump coming. What else do you think we're going to see here? Um, I'm hoping that we're going to see, like, I just, I would, I just want them all together. I know it's going to be a time jump and I'm have a feeling that there'll be a way at college or if things are that bad, like nobody goes to college, yeah. you know, like, I feel like that might be the thing where everybody's stuck in Hawkins. Yeah. I do want to see the group come together again. I do want to see sort of like, get some of these people like back together here and so and i want to see like vecna really sort of like bring like as many like sort of like, bring as big of an army together as he can possibly here i know the military's been involved in the seasons i wonder if they're gonna actually trust 11 at this point and maybe dr owen still being alive would help with that but seasons yeah. are an epic battle between like 11 maybe like that random the random sisters she's we saw in that one season two episode we never heard from again oh. maybe, maybe they're back yeah, I can skip her. I want Will to destroy Vecna because he. This is the re. Vecna took Will. Yeah. So like, you know what I mean? They brought him into the Upside Down. So like, ugh, I want Will to like destroy him because what was it like the first scene where they're playing D and D and he like shakes the dice and he's like, you know, the, the dice was wrong. Like I can't lie. You know what I mean? Like he was so honest and stuff. And I just want him to just like. I feel like that's going to have something to play into season five with his character. Yeah, absolutely. Here, and If that makes any sense. I know that's like my brain is just overwhelmed with like ideas and thoughts. So I totally get it. Cause I mean, Noah Schnapp's also one of the probably best actors in the kid group they have. So it'd be good to see him get more responsibility in the story. Yeah. And he's season. a local kid here too for yeah. our New York. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, good shout out to Noah Schnapp there as well. And I think in terms of this season, if you want to grade it compared to like the other season, where in the power rankings it fall of the seasons? Um, I'd like to say with acting and everything like that happened more towards the top, more of like a number one spot. Um, it's hard to beat that first season for me. Um, but also like this, but then in the same aspect, it's not going to be my number one. Cause I wasn't like too happy of like, they, they totally game of Thrones it. They kind of got sloppy at the end. I know that's not what they were going for, but 
Like I didn't like that weird two day jump, like whatever. So like, it's like, it's high up, but I don't know if it reaches my number one season. Yeah. I think for me, it's number two. I think season one is still the top. I put this above three. I think it's closer than I thought it was going to be because I think the Russian storyline does bring it down a little bit for me, but the rest of it, the way they structure, I think works great. Yeah. Like I said, the acting, the best, all of these actors have ever done ever. They're awesome and amazing and talented. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see what happens here going forward, but we are talking some streaming here. What else have you been keeping up with of late? Um, I like, you know, have been watching the umbrella Academy. I just finished it yesterday, the new season, and it was a very interesting season. Yeah. I just finished it as well. I finished it yesterday. Like actually like the day before that too. So I, I did think there were wasted opportunities there. I didn't like like what they did with uh, Allison's character in the season. She really just like went completely like villain for no reason. Yeah. I mean, it did tie around like the last episode, yeah. but like, I understand that there are books and I'm sure that there's like reasons for it, but I was like, what the heck? Like he's an, you know, spoiler ear, but like, he's like an alien. Yeah. I was like, what? I mean, they you know did. what I mean? I was just like, they vaguely hit that season two. They watched season two, like right before three, and he did show an episode where he's an alien in two. But the thing that bothered me was like we have all these sparrows who are very yeah. interesting characters for the most part. They basically all get killed off except for like two, except for two of them by like the sixth episode. Yeah, no, I like, and I guess I'm like they're just there for to bring the whole game back together. But I was just like these poor characters and actors that I learned to love, except for the square. Yeah, Whatever I, the square was, Christopher. Yeah, I want I, I want them to explain that to me. Like, why? Like, why is one of them a cube? I watch him not be dead and yeah. watch him be like a main character in their next season. Yeah. I'm gonna go get the graphic novels now so I can like figure this out for myself. Well, I think I read online that like this storyline has not been released yet, but like apparently oh. they the I think Gerard Way consulted with the showwriters and told them like the nuts and bolts they could make their own storyline out of it. Wow. Yeah. He's, well, he's busy doing what the My Chemical Ro- Romance. Yeah. So I, I think it's supposed to come out later this year, the actual like Sparrow's graphic novel. But like, I think like they said that like they basically combined this with like the third volume, the third graphic novel, the uh, Oblivion one. They combined those two for this season. Mm, interesting. It was, it wasn't bad. Like I said, four and five, Klaus and what's his face? Just five. I only, yeah, I was going to say just five. Um, really held the season together yeah. uh wh- what's his face um number one L- uh luther luther was so weird yeah. like did they just i know he's always not been like super bright but like i felt like he was extra dumb this season oh yeah but i like that they don't have any of the powers i thought that was kind of cool yeah, it's a fun twist to end this season here anything else you're keeping up with besides umbrella academy uh no i i'm afraid to try westworld <laughs> I've watched one of the two episodes. Like it was, it was a fun like reset what they did for season four. That's as, okay. as of right now. All right, because that season three was so bad, and I know we talked about yeah, it. Yes, we did. But it was so bad, and the only reason I might watch is because of Maeve. Yeah. But other than that, I might give it a couple more weeks before I di- di- like dive in. Yeah, I haven't watched this week's yet. I enjoyed the premiere. I would think that was fun, and I started only murders in the building again. Season two just started. I'm. I haven't started it yet. How is it? It's fun. Amy Schumer is a big guest character in this season. Uh, I'm not the biggest Amy Schumer fan, but I'll put that aside and watch the new season. 
Yeah, and they, they so right now they've given each of the three three main characters here some interesting storylines of Hals. I'm excited to see what they do with them. Oh, yeah. I'm just ex- I just think this show is awesome. And I feel like the turnaround time was so fast. Yeah, they did that pretty quick. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm just curious like how long they keep the premise going, because if someone's getting murdered in that building every season, I feel like you have an issue. Uh yeah. <laughs> There's gonna be nobody left in the building. No. Maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they have to move to a new building, somebody gets murdered there. Yeah, that'd be an interesting concept. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, be on social media, keep on some of the stuff you're up to. Uh, you can follow me. Just Google my name, Sam DeRose. I'll pop up. Uh, but you can follow me at, at Sam and Sports on TikTok and SDROS6 or on uh, Twitter. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. And that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Tim Ryder, for coming on, talking all about the Mets. And the Mets, again, Max Scherzer back tonight. could be a lot of fun for sure. I also want to thank Sandra, who just heard talking about Stranger Things, the end of Season 4, looking a little ahead to Season 5. Fun stuff there. More stuff like this podcast, including my look at how Kevin Durant basically blew up the Nets with his trade request that he made last week. Check out the blog over at justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. Check out the Sky Guys podcast. We wrapped up the Obi-Wan Kenobi season. We were joined by special guest Mike Brescia. That podcast is exclusively on the Sky Guys podcast feed. Again, Check out the Sky Guys podcast and all your favorite podcast platforms. I mean, same one I mentioned earlier in the show. You can also follow me on Twitter, mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up next week, we're going to spend a little time across the pond with our sports. We're going to preview the Open Championship, the final major of the golf season. We're going to wrap up Wimbledon and more. Until hope you have a better week than Nets fans. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife.